Good morning, church. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from Paul's letters to Titus, chapter 3, uh, starting with verse 3. You can find this on page 857 in the Bibles we provided in the seat back pockets or at the end of the aisles, or read along with me up on the board. Again, that's Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. But, but, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to spend Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. Thanks, Joe. I'm wondering about the person in your life with the big butt. And don't get me wrong, it's an important butt. You've experienced enough to know that it's coming, and so you're actually waiting for their butt to drop. Now, I want to share with you about a couple examples of this in my own life, and many of you are frightened just wondering what I'm going to say, but uh, it'll make sense in a minute. Uh, one of these people was a, was a boss of mine, senior manager at a furniture store where I was working to pay my way through seminary, and we would have these quarterly reviews on our job performance. And he was always very encouraging. He'd bring me in and say things like, you know, you're bringing X amount of money uh, to our store each week. And that's really great. And your, your colleagues think you're nice and, actually, and, and like you. You practice good hygiene. These sorts of things were said. And I was like, oh, great. But I always waited, almost to the point where I would complete his sentence. But, and he'd go, yes, but, but I wish you'd sell more mattresses. And I wish you would stop talking to so many customers on company time. In fact, be a little less friendly, is what he said. So he always had that encouragement, but you could always anticipate that but. And another person I was thinking of when it comes to this in my own life, is a friend of mine who I sought out for counsel, often seek out for counsel. And in this particular case, it was this last year where circumstances had conspired to the point where it seemed like God was telling my family and I that we were supposed to put down roots and buy a home here in Cayman. And so I was asking him about that because as Proverbs 15.22 says, hey, plans fail for a lack of counsel, but if you get many advisors, they can succeed. So 
So it's like, oh, I want to make a good plan. I want to be stupid and foolish, so let me ask someone. Let me ask someone I trust. And so I was asking him about what do you think about buying a home, and he was very encouraging. He said this seems very, uh, could be very wise, even faithful to what God is doing in your life. And I was waiting for it. Because my friend always has a but on the other hand. So I waited for it, and sure enough, it came. But on the other hand, have you considered stamp duty, what that's going to cost you? Have you thought about resale value of what you want versus what's affordable for you to live? Have you considered what a mortgage is going to do and the pressure it's going to bring to a family budget? And so it was funny because I could almost anticipate, to the, to almost to the second, him saying, but on the other hand, and yet I was so appreciative that he added that into it, that he had a big but to share with me because... That was a heavy dose of realism that I needed for a dream that we had. And that was one of the reasons I was going to him for counsel in the first place. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here in his letter to Titus. He's been talking about the positive power of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, to change people's lives. But, here at the end of the letter, and you see the pivot. And that's what I want you to see here. There's a, there's a pivot There's a realism that Paul wants to add at the very end of this letter. That, But when the gospel does change your life and you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. There are some realities about the Christian life I need to tell you about. There's a, a pretty big but that you need to hear about and be aware of. So last week, and we read a chunk of it this morning, Paul was encouraging Titus in his teaching to insist on these trustworthy things, these things that are excellent, things that are profitable. What are these things? Namely, two things. One, that Jesus can rescue and change your life. But not because of anything you've done or any, any good in you that you can put on your scorecard, but solely because Jesus loves you unconditionally. Because of his mercy, he wants to do this. He wants to rescue you and change you. That was one profitable thing. The second profitable thing is that when you trust Jesus, God the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. In fact, he is poured out, we read, into us. So God the Holy Spirit is coursing through every part of our body, our soul, our mind, our desires, our will. It starts to change because the Holy Spirit comes into us. And these are, this is very good news for anyone, whether they be a Christian or a non-Christian. Whether you're listening to this for the first time or you've heard it a number of times. God wants to, to, to love you, bring into a relationship with you out of sheer love and mercy. And that he loves you so much, he's going to come inside of you and dwell within you to empower you to live this life. And this is good stuff, Paul says to Titus. You should be emphasizing to every person. But there's also this needed dose of realism to the Christian life, to church life, that you need to tell them about. And so in verse 9, we see that big but that, that pivots the thought. Yes, the gospel, but I need to touch for a minute on these nitty-gritty realities of life. So last week we asked the question, what's gotten into me? And the answer was simple. The mercy of God. God, the Holy Spirit. That has gotten into me. And this week we're going to ask the question, who's out to get me? And the very simple answer to that is Satan, the devil himself. Just a quick bio on this guy, if you don't know him. Satan is an angel created by God who rebels against God and his authority. He says, God, I actually want to be higher than you. I want to be worshipped also. So Satan gets kicked out of heaven and condemned to hell, where he becomes a king himself. 
He has his own kingdom of evil spirits called demons. Jesus describes Satan as a thief, a murderer, and a liar. And he's been that way from the beginning. He will do, say, or use anything to drag you down, including people you trust, including Christians. That's when we most need to remember who's really out for us, who's really coming after us. Because it's not our fellow Christians. We often get frustrated and we point fingers, even in the church. But at the core of really who's to blame, it's Satan himself. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12 that our struggle, our daily struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, not against one another. Paul's not talking basic anatomy here, saying flesh and blood. He's saying our struggle isn't you, it isn't me. It's against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what's really going on behind the scenes, we have to realize. So Satan will appeal to our pride to distract us. He will appeal to jealousy to divide us. And this is all going on behind the scenes. So we're going to talk about these twin temptations this morning. Pride, jealousy, and what that does to us. And we're also going to talk about the example of Paul and how to defeat the devil. All right, so first of all, we're going to talk about the pride, just the pride that sometimes happens once you walk with Jesus for the while, but for a while, a feeling like you know better. Starting in verse 9, let's read there. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. They are unprofitable and they are worthless. And I want to be careful here because it is totally legit and even helpful sometimes to bring up questions, observations, It sometimes can be very helpful to challenge the status quo of what you heard about God, the Holy Spirit, the church growing up. One reason people often bring that up is they're they're just initially confused about who God is and what the Bible says and what it's saying here even, what we're reading this morning. And you might have a question or you might want to debate about it because you learned something different when you were a kid. Or sometimes people bring up questions or debate something because they were deeply hurt by it. They were deeply hurt by something that the Bible seems to be at odds with or something that the church teaches. How can, how can what the church says be true, what the Bible says be true, but I also was hurt in this way? So people have deep questions. But the longer you go down that road, asking questions, getting debates, unsatisfied with what the Bible has to say and people who've walked with God for a while have to offer, eventually what comes up is pride. Eventually, it will result in pride. We put our need for clarity. We put my my opinion, my desire to be right ahead of obedience to God. So we'll ask questions, we'll ask questions, we'll ask questions. But we won't actually obey what God has to say. And eventually, it becomes a matter of pride. I want what I want. I want to do what I want to do, not what God says to do. So Paul gives a list here of, of foolish talk, doesn't he? controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. So what's going on here in Crete? Remember, Titus is in Crete. Paul's left him behind there. Titus is in charge of pastoring this church. So what's going on? Controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. That's a pretty generic list except for two details that stood out to me. I don't know if they stand out to you. One is genealogies. People are debating about genealogies. That's a strange thing, right? And people are debating about the law. That's just at least a curious thing. 
Thankfully, that's enough of a clue to know what church members in Crete are talking about. Paul addresses these same two things in the church of Ephesus, where Timothy is pastoring. And so he talks to Timothy about it as well. So here's what's going on. It's going to give you a little historical detail. There were two books that came out in the first century that kind of let us know what was going on in churches at this time. They were the the book of Jubilee and the Antiquities of Philo. Anybody read those for summer reading? Anyone? No? No? No one? Didn't think so. What they basically are, are embellished Old Testament stories, retold again. Sort of for a different vantage point. Almost like uh, revisionist history. It'd be like reading a book and someone saying in the beginning of the book, here's what the history books didn't tell you. Here's what they didn't want you to hear. And that was the kind of tone of this book. They went on to talk about people like Abraham, Moses, and David, but they embellished on the stories to emphasize the indestructibility of Israel and the indestructibility of the law. Those are the two focuses of these stories. And so what happened in Crete is people would talk about it. Christians in Crete were talking about whether it was good or not, not only to be a Christian, but also be Jewish. That's what they were talking about in the marketplaces or after church on Sunday. Hey guys, have you heard about these stories? About how it's great to be a Christian, yes, but if you're Jewish, like we can be part of a nation that's indestructible. We can be part of something beyond eternal. We can be part of something on this earth that no one can defeat. What do you think about that? And that was the kind of chatter that was going on among the church. It might seem silly to us, but that was big to them. They were thinking, you know, look, if we get circumcised, we can be part of something even better. But it was pride, wasn't it? It was pride because people were saying, well, you know, it's good to be a Christian, but if we know something that's kind of different, if we know something that can make us a better Christian, only we'd be better than all those normal Christians. And so Paul said, avoid these kind of, this kind of talk, this kind of controversy. It distracts people. And you're really going to hear controversies from today's pulpit. They originate today, controversies do, at YouTube clips, passed around through email or posted on Facebook come about through chats we have. Hey, have you heard about this new teaching or read this new book? Or heard this fresh new teacher and what he has to say? Some church cultures, it's theologically driven. People have controversial questions like, does God choose people he's going to save? Does he elect them? Or do people have a choice in the matter of being saved? People have questions like, did God create the world in seven days like Genesis 1 and 2 describes? Or is there room in Genesis' account for an older earth that matches up with a fossil record? Those are questions people have. Or people have questions like, look, I read in the Bible about men in church. Can women lead in the church also? Is there a place for women to exercise leadership? These are the questions people often have in church cultures, but I think not ours. So some churches have theologically driven controversies and things they talk about. Some churches have practically driven controversies. And I think that's more like our church. When people talk about different things about church, when you maybe talk about your friends, with your friends about sunrise and what it's like, what you might even be dissatisfied with, you're probably going to talk about two categories. Worship and prayer. Worship and prayer. Lightning rods for churches. So worship, first of all. Now you may have seen this uh, non-denominational musical guide to worship. Um, it's the fact that our hand position in worship is indicative of our quality of worship. 
Alright, so there are different ways to worship in the church, and we're often evaluated by how we do it. So there's the rookie way to worship, which is hands in the pocket, elbows flailing, right? That's, that's a starter. You're just starting now. You're starting to worship God. This is good. Maybe you do a lean, right? If you get really risky as a rookie, you might, you might do the uh, holding the TV. You're holding the TV, right? But then you might advance to, to an intermediate level where essentially you get the uh, hold my baby, right? Hold my baby. And then, then there's Mufasa. Then there's Mufasa in worship. We're, we're worshiping like this. And then you might graduate to the pro worship, which is like this, goalposts, right? Goalposts. Or the finger point, right? Or the, or the schoolroom. Raise the hand. Raise the hand. But if you want to be an expert in worship, if you really want to show your passion, you've got to go village people, right? Village people. Or if you're feeling really victorious, like after the last song today in worship, you're going to go rocky, right? Victory! Da, da, da. And that's going to show how full of the Spirit your church is. That's going to show how alive your church is. That's what people chatter about. Is your church spirit-filled? I'll probably see it in the music. Probably see it in the way people worship. And what do we do? We start to kind of judge each other. I'll see it in the songs they use. Right? Do they use all those, the poetic flowery songs about emotion or the thinking man song with hymns? And so we start to evaluate, don't we, based on that. Have controversial discussions about it. Well, really all that matters is, is our worship rooted in the gospel. Is our worship rooted in what Jesus has done for us and our thankful response to that. That's what really matters for worship. But also prayer. I think prayer is another area. Some will stumble upon a helpful teaching about prayer. Maybe like I said on YouTube or online, but it often goes from a helpful teaching to a superior teaching. Like if you pray a certain line of scripture, like the prayer of Jabez, that will really force God's hand and make him change your life. Or if I rebuke certain evil spirits and call them out, or if I can speak in tongues my prayer language, or prayer primarily the Lord's prayer that I grew up with, those are ways that are better. Like, we know better, so we're going to pray that way. But it's pride, isn't it? I know how to worship better, I know how to pray better. It's pride. Paul says, avoid that kind of foolish talk. That's what stirs up Division. Speaking of which, here's the second thing we see here this morning. The jealousy of divisive talk. Satan will also use the jealousy. Jealousy sparked up through divisive talk. Look in verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. You know, jealousy is the least enjoyable of all the sins. It really is. It's the least enjoyable. Pride, at least you have the self-satisfaction of feeling like you're right, even though it's completely misguided. And with sort of self-indulgence, at least you have that temporary pleasure you get to indulge in, even though it's fleeting. Jealousy, you're always left wanting what you can't have. You're always left wanting what others have and you can't. There is no return on investment with jealousy. It is an empty indulgence. What is it in the church that people want but can't have? I think either people want to be in charge, they think they can make decisions better, or they want the church to be like their friends, or like their old church, or like the church they see on channel 24 with all those people, 10,000 people. We want to be like that church. But we can't have it. We have sunrise. (laughs) That's what we got. Satan attacks this weakness and deceives us into thinking, you know what? Our church isn't like that. 
or I think I do know better, so I should probably say something. No, I ought to say something. No, 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 actually, I deserve to say something. But you know what? I'm not going to say it to the person in charge or the person responsible. I should probably just say it to someone else. And so starts divisiveness. Unity, guys, is so important to God. I mean, we, we worship a united God. Three persons, but united as one God. One essence, one being. And it's so important to him. In, the, in the chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, we're told that God's plan set in place before the creation of the world is to unite all things to him. All things in heaven and on earth. God wants to be the giant magnet uniting all things to him. All the polar opposites. And then he goes on to tell us about that plan. Paul does in chapter 2. He's going to unite God as people to him in heaven through the good news about Jesus. Through Jesus Christ. And then, the second half of Ephesians 2, he talks about how God's going to unite people to one another through Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of church, guys, we want to be. If I could describe our church with one chapter in the Bible, I hope it would be Ephesians 2. That we are people who are united to God by grace, by his sheer love for us. Not because of what we've done, because his great love for us. And that love will be expressed towards one another so that we're united. Jew and Gentile, expat, Kamanian, British, American, once again coming together. This is the kind of church we should be. Unity, so important. And so Paul gives a three-stage process to deal with people who disrupt that unity. People who talk behind others' backs. People who, who complain and gripe to the point where it becomes destructive. Paul says, step one, you need to warn that kind of person. Step two, you need to warn them again. Step three, you need to ask them to leave the church. He's following what Jesus said in Matthew 18, where you confront someone privately, confront them again in their sin, and if they don't listen to you, ask them to leave the church. And you would think a specific application of that, if we were to read the whole New Testament, and yeah, Paul talked about asking people to leave the church, you'd think it would be over sexual sin, or you'd think it'd be over money laundering, or abuse of power. But what is it over? It's about people talking behind other people's backs. It's about griping about the church. Griping about what you want. Isn't that interesting? It's that way because unity is so important for us. And on the surface, it seems like it'd be a hard balance to strike to be a church member who actually gives a darn. Because there's a sense in which you could be like, ah, I don't care about the church. You don't have to worry about me being divisive because I don't really care what goes on. Hopefully you care. And if you care, you might have concerns. So how do, you, how do you give rise to those concerns? How do you talk about that? Well, on the one hand, the Bible's clear about what our general posture is supposed to be like. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And listen to this. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, because that would be of no advantage to you. When people groan and they complain, then you have pastors, elders, community group leaders, ministry team leaders who are always thinking about pleasing people. Well, I'm worried about what Jim will think. I'm worried about what Matt will think. And so they're constantly burdened not following God, but following the demands and the complaints of other people. You see? It would be no advantage. But how do we do this in a way that also doesn't excuse leaders from abusing their power? Doesn't excuse them from leading the sheep astray? 
Well, Titus 3 is pretty clear here. Titus is pretty clear here in chapter 3. If our elders or community group leaders deny the gospel in any way, we should challenge them. If we don't, as verse 8 puts it, insist on these things, right? Paul says to insist on these things, Titus. If you don't insist on the gospel, if your leaders don't insist on the good news about Jesus as being the power that can actually change our lives, the power that can reconcile us when we get mad at each other, the power that could bring us out and lift us out of depression, then you should confront a leader in the church. You should confront me. Here's another question. What do we do when someone approaches us with divisive or critical talk? Someone comes to you, starts out nice, but then they, they kind of talk about a mutual friend. Or they start griping about the church and this and that. What should you do? Here's my encouragement. Be a cul-de-sac, not a highway. Be a cul-de-sac, not a highway. When someone comes to us, it should end with us. We should be a no outlet. It should not keep on going as a result of talking to me. A slight that someone brings up should, not, should end, not widen. People want it to widen. People want to come to you and be like, yes, you agree with me. We, we, we're together on this. We're against this together. Doesn't that feel so good? And yet you just created a coalition of divisiveness, haven't you? you you've united that person in divisiveness. And like a car in a cul-de-sac, a complaint can also be turned around. I'm really going to use this analogy as much as I can. You can turn around that complaint by offering someone a simple but very sincere, hey, if you have an issue with that, you really should go talk with them. So be like a cul-de-sac, not a highway, when someone comes to you with a complaint. Otherwise, the devil likes to use jealousy to start dividing a church. So thinking we know better and expressing it, venting out loud what we do if we were in charge, or if only we had our ideal church, these are ways that Satan tempts us to be distracted and divided. But there's an antidote to such a temptation. And we see that antidote at work in Paul himself. So thirdly here, we see the freedom of a gospel focus. The freedom of a gospel focus. Paul demonstrates in these last greetings. Have you guys ever read the Bible before and you're reading these letters and you just get to the point where the heading even says final instructions and greetings. And you're just going to gloss over it, right? You're going to read this part as quickly as you can. You want to say you read the Bible. But let's be honest. When you hear Artemis, Tychicus, Nicopolis, Right, Apollos, uh, Zenos, the lawyer, thinking, great, there's a lawyer mentioned in here, I'm a lawyer, but on that, you're moving on. But there's actually something very interesting here that Paul demonstrates in these last greetings, and that is an unrelenting focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in word and in deed. Check it out. First, the gospel spreading in word through people like Artemis, Tychicus, Titus, and Apollos. More on Apollos in a moment. He cares about people showing the gospel. God has unconditionally loved us. We're going to do unconditional deeds towards someone else. He says that right in verse 14. Continue to dedicate yourself to good works. His admonition to Titus. People are going to visit you. Make sure they lack nothing. Paul wants the gospel to be expressed and spread to every person. That is his focus. And his focus on the gospel kills pride and jealousy. His focus on the gospel produces this freedom that releases him from pride and jealousy. Freedom from pride. In this small detail, Paul indicates that he doesn't know it all. He doesn't know it all. And he's free to admit that. As a pastor, I've been around a lot of pastors. And I've been around a lot of pastors and leaders who cannot admit they don't know what they're talking about. Who cannot admit they don't know the answer to a question. Or they don't have all the answers at all. 
Paul, right here, indicates that, you know what? I don't know yet what I'm doing. He says he's going to send Artemis or Tychicus to Crete to replace Titus. Think on this from a strategic point of view. Titus, by all accounts, has done a wonderful job being a pastor. He's that pastor everyone's going to have a picnic for. They're going to treat him to a vacation at the end. They're going to say, yay, 10 years, you were, you've been the best, Titus. We love you. He knows the people there. And Paul has to replace Titus with someone they really don't know. And the choice is still unknown to him. It would be very tempting for Paul in this situation to say, hey, Titus, come here. Let's talk about this. Do you mind staying on a few more months? Do you mind staying on a little bit longer? It'd be tempting for Paul to sort of think he knows best to control the situation. From a strategic point of view, it would just make sense. But he trusts, Paul does, that God knows better. And that's at the root of the gospel, guys. If you and I were to make up a religion on how we could please God or how we could have peace and tranquility in our lives, we'd probably look for the peace and tranquility in something like Buddhism or Zen Buddhism or or, or Zen yoga, where we can have some sort of inner peace, and that's what people all turn to and have made up. If we thought that in order to please God, we needed to earn points with him, because God one day is going to judge us based on how much good stuff we've done, we'd probably turn to something like Islam, which basically counts up your points, and at the end says, you've been just, you're going to heaven, or you've been unjust, you're going to hell. Christianity is unlike anything we would have made up. God comes to earth to take on our stinky flesh, to live amongst us. And if that weren't enough, God dies on a wooden pole. He dies in the place we deserved. And by trusting in him, we can have life forever. That is like nothing, as C.S. Lewis puts it, it's like nothing we would ever made up. C.S. Lewis says that I believe in Christianity because it's like nothing I would ever conceived of or made up myself. It has to be something from God. At its root, it is God knows better. He knew exactly what we needed. And that is true for us in life as well. And it's a great comfort for me. It's been a great comfort for me, that fact, of the past few days. Because over the past months, we've lost leaders in our church. Primarily, we've lost leaders due to them moving off island. But also due to God them feeling led in another direction to serve in another way in the church. And I often feel pressure to urge people to keep on doing what they're doing because they're doing it so well. Like Paul probably felt with Titus. Or I feel pressure to replace someone. I feel pressure like, well, we're not going to have people for hospitality. We're not going to have someone to lead this community group. We're not going to have people to care and shepherd the people in our church. Like Paul must have felt like with Artemis or Tychicus. But the good news is God knows better. Maybe you feel the pressure because you're unsure of your next move at work or in a relationship or in your home life. Maybe you you feel pressure about that. And the good news is we see in the Gospels that God knows better. We would never have thought up that God would come to this earth and love us and save us. But God always knows better. And we're reminded of that here. That frees us from pride. We don't know best. God always knows better. We're also, through the Gospel, freed from jealousy. And another little small detail, Paul shows his love and confidence for a potential rival. You guys may not know this, but when you see the Christian world and some of you guys hop on podcasts and you, you download sermons or you, you have favorite worship leaders and things like that that you like to listen to, there can be subtle rivals in the Christian world. And Paul had one too. Someone who was a potential rival. Paul sends a man named Apollos to Crete, right? We see that here in the verse. Zenos the lawyer and also Apollos. 
It's interesting because when he's sending Apollos to Crete, he would know that Apollos is probably going to preach while he's there. And the reason he knows this is because Apollos is a preacher. Paul's talked about him before in the New Testament. His name comes up multiple times in Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth. And some people in that church have been saying, you know what, I'm a big fan of Paul. I love Paul. Love that guy. He is my bro. He's my dude. I love him when he speaks. I feel like I can relate to him. But then more people were starting to say, you know what, I like Apollos. Apollos, man, he is fresh. He's relevant. He's the young guy. He brings the thunder when he preaches. I love him. And this rivalry sort of developed to the point where we get to chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, and Paul's still talking about this rivalry. He's still talking about, guys, don't worry about who follows Paul, who follows Apollos. Stop it. He spends nearly the whole chapter talking about it, though. It's gotten so bad. How would you feel at work or at home if you were to do the majority of work on a project and yet someone else who maybe put in 10% got the credit? How would you feel if, if they were the ones who were kind of like more cared about, more favored, even seen more loved? How would you feel? How likely would you be to support that person wholeheartedly? Paul introduced the gospel to Corinth. Paul labored there for a year and a half. And another dude named Apollo swoops in, likely after Paul leaves, and he starts to build the people up in the gospel as well. And people start to love Apollos. He's the big draw. He's the one with the magnetic personality. It would be very understandable for Paul to feel a little bit jealous. Like, guys, I, I thought I was kind of like your spiritual mentor and like, you know, we spent like a year and a half together and you learned about Jesus from me and who's this other guy? But Paul doesn't care. He just doesn't care. He's like, Apollos, man, take this letter, bring it to Crete, do your thing there. In fact, I'll tell Titus to make some food for you and provide everything you need. Paul just doesn't care. And the reason is this. His identity isn't found in how others view him. His identity is found in how deeply God loves him. His identity is found in how God views him as a child of God. So in a nutshell this morning, if you remember nothing else, remember this. An unrelenting focus on the gospel of Jesus produces freedom from pride and jealousy. And that just might save our church. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the work that you have done for us on the cross. Thank you for on the cross proving that we are far worse off than we ever dared think, but also far more loved than we ever dared dream. And that both of these things are true. And and because of that, Lord, produce in us and our lives a humble confidence. Not pride, also not self-pity, but a humble confidence that we are deeply loved that we are wonderfully gifted, that you have a specific and detailed and great plan for us, yet not because of anything we've done, not because we know better, not because of something inherently good at us, but simply because you love us. Help us as, as we focus, drink in, spread the gospel. We, we trust you, Jesus. We trust you'll protect us from the schemes of Satan who appeals to our pride appeals to our jealousy to distract and divide us as a church. Help us keep on guard, but help us keep on guard by every day thinking, meditating, praying through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.